Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That sound you can hear is a noise I consider to be quintessentially English. Sure, you'll hear it in African nations and in India, but you heard it here first. And no prizes for guessing. It is, of course, the sound of a steam engine. This particular engine runs along the Bluebell Railway in Sussex. It's called Camelot. But today's episode is set in Yorkshire, home of the first public railway in the world. The Lake Lock Railroad was built near Wakefield in West Yorkshire way back in 1798. It wasn't a steam railway then. Horses used to drag rail carts along it. But what those carts were transporting was coal. The very same coal that was used on the first ever commercial steam railway in the world. That one, funnily enough, was also in Yorkshire. The Middleton Railway near Leeds. It just so happens that during the last series of the Three Ravens podcast, I ended up talking a lot about water. Makes sense. Vast numbers of folktales revolve around it. But let's not forget the importance of fire in folklore too. What coal unlocked for the English people changed the world in any number of ways. And the use of steam to power machines combining those two primal elements arrived at a time in history where magic was falling out of fashion to be replaced by the cold, hard glare of empiricism. And yet... The beady eyes of science have their blind spots, places where the unexplainable continues to huff and puff and dance and jig, not giving two hoots about something as prosaic as rational explanation. With this thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree. 
Down and down, hey down and down They were as black as they might be With a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime and all dark arts. Eleanor Conlon. Well, hi there. And oh my goodness, it's the final episode of Series 2 and it feels like it's flown by. It's mad, isn't it? That's not to say we won't be releasing all new content through October because we will for our first ever haunting season, Mm -hmm. which we're really excited about. But we will then be taking a bit of a break during November to recharge and research and get our ducks in a row for Series 3. And in terms of haunting season, we'll be releasing special Halloween-themed bonus episodes every Thursday, including a Magic and Medicines episode about Ouija, a Beastry episode about demons, a Dying Arts episode about corn dollies, and a Something Wicked about the Candyman Killer. And every Monday, we'll be releasing all new ghost stories to spook everyone out in advance of Sawain itself. And then on Halloween itself, we'll be releasing a Sawain special all about the history and folklore of Halloween, mm-hmm. which should be really interesting and more than a little scary. As for Patreon, we didn't get any new supporters this week, but if you would like to support the podcast and receive exclusive and bonus content, including our episodes early and ad-free and monthly Patreon exclusive episodes, episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, all of our stories as text versions and our monthly monthly newsletter, please consider signing up for just $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. Think of it as buying Martin and I a pumpkin spice latte each month. Although we'll probably spend it on books and going to interesting places to do research for the podcast, yeah, maybe the true. occasional pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> and on Patreon, we of course released our monthly three ravens newsletter yesterday, packed to the gunnels with traditional folk customs for the month, as well as Celtic tree and zodiac information and an all-new tarot spread and some Sarwain magic to try as well. Plus, next week, we'll be releasing our Patreon-exclusive episode for October, which is an all-new ghost tour mm. around the ancient and very haunted town of Rye. Yes. And we have a new Three Ravens Film Club film for October too. Oh, yes. So, uh, we released our Film Club episode for September last Thursday. That was all about John Landis's 1981 cult classic An American Werewolf in London. And in October, we're encouraging everyone to watch the 2015 mega excellent folk horror movie The Witch. If you've never seen The Witch, it's a brilliant watch. All about a Puritan family in 1630s New England encountering sinister forces in the woods near their isolated farm. (laughs) And if you've already seen it, why not watch it again? It's so good. Either way, please email your thoughts about The Witch through to us for inclusion in that film club episode for October to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com or post your responses to the movie on our various threads about it on social media. Speaking of sending us stuff, we're obviously right at the end of the series and we're still hoping to receive a raft of entries for our Three Ravens card design Mm. contest all about winter folklore. You've still got a week, so we'll close entries on Monday the 9th of October, but do please send things through as we're still quite light on entries. Yes, to say it one last time, we are looking for original artwork from artists of all skill levels on the theme of winter folklore. Send us 
JPEGs and we'll pick our favourite three to turn into greetings cards and sell through our shop at threeravenspodcast.com forward slash shop for a 50-50 profit share with the winners. Do please send those entries through to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com and also send us any folklore you would like us to include in our second ever listener episode. We've had some great ones through so far which I'm really looking forward to retelling and so that might be local cryptids and creatures from your hometown or region stories, anecdotes, folk remedies, medicines. We're super keen to hear from you. So do please send us things to include in that second listener episode and also send us pictures of your pumpkins for this year. Yes, please. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, then this might be news to you, but we are welcoming entries to our inaugural Three Ravens Pumpkin Carving Contest. The rules are very simple. Carve a pumpkin, Take a picture of your carved pumpkin and email the picture of it to us via threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. You can be in the picture or not, as you like, but still, send it through to us and we'll post every entry we receive on our social channels and give you a shout out. And then the three favourites we receive, uh, we'll send you a Three Ravens Haunting Season mug. Yes, we have a new Haunting Season Three Ravens logo coming from Ollie James Dare. And I'll be popping special limited edition Haunting Season merchandise on the show at threeravenspodcast.com forward slash shop in the next week or so. Yes, right. Well, that's the admin done. Uh, Let's get into the meat of this episode. And it's worth saying that the middle bit of this episode, i.e. the county information and the story, did feature on a special episode of the Three Ravens podcast as released on the History of England podcast feed way back at the start of June. And we remain eternally grateful to the lovely David Crowther at the History of England podcast for being one of the earliest big supporters of Three Ravens. Mm. We know that Lots of people who listen to us came from David's kind promotion of us. And if you don't listen to the History of England, then we highly recommend it. Yes, it's yes. a brilliant podcast. And David's right now discussing the Civil War. So if you're a bit of a Cromwell fan like me, it's golden listening. <laughs> so the middle chunk of this episode is the same as that special episode was. But this start bit is new and the end is new. So do stick around, even if you've heard it, for some lovely correspondence and so on. And thanks again, David. And thanks also to Emma from Real Life Ghost Stories, who we went to see in her theatre company's new play, Death and the Carpenter, this weekend just gone. And also thank you to Mark from the Folklore Podcast. We recorded a special episode with him the other day featuring an all-new story, so we'll let everyone know when that's out as well. Anyway, we are releasing this episode on Monday the 2nd of October, and we have three pretty disparate fairs that traditionally take place today, the first being the King's Norton Mop Fair. We've talked about mop fairs or hiring fairs before, these being traditional days for hiring new staff, but I can't imagine the King's Norton Mop Fair serves quite the same purpose. Today. <laughs> no, that would be a fair assumption. Uh, but this fair has been taking place since the 1500s, so it's a really long-running fair, traditionally taking place on the first Monday in October. This year it's actually taking place on Saturday, October the 7th, on the green in the village of Kings Norton in the West Midlands. And it's a pretty big deal, including all sorts of traditional and modern amusements, dancing, and maybe most excitingly, the roasting of a whole oxen. Wow, that sounds delicious and uh, quite difficult to get it on a Yeah, you would have thought so, right? Uh, But it should be a right old time. Then uh, the 2nd of October specifically is known in the Hertfordshire town of Broying as Old Man Day. This again dates from the 1500s when Matthew Wall, an old man from Broying, was in his coffin on the way to being buried at St Mary the Virgin's Church when the pallbearers slipped, dropped the coffin 
And in doing so, old Matthew Wall was jolted awake, going on to live several more years before dying for realsies in 1595. My goodness, that's outstanding. I mean, being buried alive is one of those true nightmare scenarios. But still, being safe from that fate is quite the lucky break. Well, quite. And for this reason, Matthew Wall stipulated in his will that the money he left behind should be used for good purposes, which include the children of the village sweeping the church paths... People leave brambles on Matthew's grave to keep the sheep off. And the church bells ring a wedding peal as, after his miraculous revival, Matthew Wall remarried. So it's a bit of a village coming together and celebration with some cool folklore attached. I love that. What a great occasion. But you mentioned three fairs. What's the third one? Well... This one is in abeyance, meaning it doesn't happen anymore. And for good reason, as it's pretty macabre. Go on. Don't don't leave me hanging. Okay. Well, hanging is actually quite a relevant thing to do on this occasion, which is known as the Derbyshire Goose Riding. It's not as cute as it sounds. Just warning you. Also impossible, unless you're a fairy. Geese (laughs) are not large enough to ride. If they were, it would be my chosen form of transportation. I love geese. (laughs) Okay, so it was very common to have goose fairs in England in early October because October 10th was Old Michaelmas Day. And it was, of course, traditional and remains traditional to eat goose on Michaelmas. So people would attend goose fairs to buy and sell geese and other seasonal goodies. Old Michaelmas Day itself was also pretty dark, actually, because it was also known as Dog Whipping Day. Oh, no, that doesn't sound good. Yeah, this was banned in 1853 but for centuries it was traditional on old Michaelmas to make switches and whips and chase off stray dogs and beggars from your local area and that all happened on old Michaelmas day so pretty gross but before then you had the really macabre sport of goose riding at some goose fairs particularly in Derbyshire How does this questionable sport work? Well, basically right up into the 19th century people would take a live goose and grease its neck, then suspend it on a rope by its feet between trees about 10 feet high in the air. Oh, this does not sound good. Yeah, certainly not for the goose. Uh, Then people would ride on horseback underneath the goose at a gallop and they then attempt to pull the head off the goose as they rode beneath it and if they managed it they'd win the goose to take home and eat on old Michaelmas Day. utterly barbaric yeah. and I also don't understand why the goose had to be alive. I know, it's absolutely gross, oh. isn't it? It's disgusting. And this is an example of why maybe not all traditions should survive. Mm-hmm. But still, pretty interesting, I think you'll admit. Yeah, but horrid. Yes, well, with that traumatising image fresh in my mind, <laughs> shall we wake the county crows from their coffins and have them ring us into Yorkshire? Yes, let's. Now, why are you lot all greased up? Come on, don't make me get my switch. The historic county of Yorkshire is located in the northeast of England. It's bordered by, deep breath, County Durham to the north, Westmoreland to the northwest. Lancashire to the west, Cheshire and Derbyshire to the southwest, oh, second breath, uh, Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire to the southeast, and the North Sea to the east. Well done. Thank you. So, the first question why is Yorkshire surrounded by so much stuff? <laughs> well, Yorkshire is England's largest county by a long way. We're talking almost 15,000 square kilometres, so over 9,000 square miles in old money. 
Its nearest competition is Lincolnshire, which doesn't even scrape 7,000 square kilometres. That's like 4,000 square miles. So under half the size of Yorkshire. It's huge. It's massive. And because it's so ginormous, Yorkshire has been split into different parts and councils and authorities loads of times in its history, including the ancient three ridings of East Riding, North Riding and West Riding. In case you're curious, riding means thirding in Old Norse. So like a third? Yeah. Ah, that's interesting. So a riding is a third. Yeah, that's right. And another cool thing, All of the boundaries of the ridings start at the city walls in ancient York, which is pretty groovy. Anyway, all of these subdivisions mean it's quite difficult to pin down an overall Yorkshire motto, although the people of Yorkshire famously refer to the county as God's own country which I think trumps all other motto contenders, to be honest. Yeah, it's a a bit of a mic drop, isn't it? (laughs) It is, it is. Now, it's a funny mantra to have because Yorkshire may be God's own country, but if it is, then we're definitely talking about a vengeful Old Testament-style God. The region has had a heck of a time. Um, Before Yorkshire became Yorkshire, it was initially ruled over by a people we call the Hen Ogleth, the old northerners, they were split into tribes, including the Brigantes, who we talked about a bit during our County Durham and Lancashire episodes, and the Parisi, who ruled to the east. Then along came the Romans with their big swords, and they established a capital in the Brigantian region known as Isurium Brigantum, which was near the modern-day village of Oldborough. The Roman road of Deer Street actually runs through Oldborough on the way to Hadrian's Wall on the border with Scotland. And there's a pretty cool Roman city museum at Oldborough that's in the hands of English heritage. Now, the Roman focus on the region was actually really focused on Eboracum, the joint capital of Roman Britain, which would later become Yorkshire's historic county town of York. But not yet Spaniard. Not yet Around 500 years after the Romans left England, a series of feuding Celtic kingdoms sprung up in the region with their big spears, including the Kingdom of Dera, the Kingdom of Ebrauk, and the Kingdom of Elmet. Plus, during this period, there was a series of influxes of German Angles, as well as Danes, Franks, and Huns, with their big boats, all of which jostled with the Kingdom of Northumbria to the north with their own big weapons. Wow. Yeah. Lots <laughs> so it was quite desirable for invaders. Yeah, it was. It was seen as a really important place, I guess, because it's so big. There's lots of great little river inlets, lots of nice coast. But you've just got this constant kind of maelstrom of this lot killing that lot and this lot killing that lot, this lot being invaders and then settling for a bit and then leaving because they keep being attacked by that lot. And it just kind of keeps on happening again and again and again. Now, Northumbria was obviously quite a powerful neighbour to have. At one point, it stretched from the Irish Sea on England's west coast all the way over to the North Sea on the east coast, then from Edinburgh in Scotland right down to Sheffield in South Yorkshire, which is pretty beefy. Beefy like a red Oxo cube straight in your mouth. That's rich (laughs) gravy, that is. Then around 865, along came the Vikings with their big axes and what was known as, and I quote from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Great 
heathen army. <laughs> now, have you ever heard of the great heathen army? No, but if I ever start a punk band, that's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great name for a punk band. Well, if you ever watch the delightfully silly TV series Vikings, then that attempts to offer a deeply ahistorical account of this period, with the five sons of legendary hero Ragnar Lodbrok, including the wonderfully named Ivar the Boneless, a rocking and a rolling through Northumbria. Was he boneless? It's a big question. Some people think that he might have been disabled, and so oh. he was carried places. Oh, I see. Um, so there's a, a whole load... His bones weren't strong enough yeah, to support him. That's right. I like the idea he was just really flexible. Yeah, that, that he could just do backbends. Yeah, just <laughs> confuse the invading armies with his amazing stretches. Yeah, he'd done Viking Pilates. <laughs> Over the hypermobile. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, now, it's from this period that we get the names York and Yorkshire. This is because the Norse raiders and invaders came along and established the kingdom of Jorvik, spelt J-O-R-V-I-K, with the capital at what was once Eborokum, which they simply called Jorvik. Jorvik, York, Jorvikskaya, Yorkshire. Lovely. Yeah. Now, as you might have been able to predict, it wasn't just plain sailing for the kingdom of Jorvik either. <laughs> because at the same time, Alfred the Great and Guthrum, king of East Anglia, had established the Dane law, which we've also talked about on previous episodes. This huge territory was even richer gravy than Northumbria. <laughs> In case you're unfamiliar, the Dane law was governed by a single set of laws which covered most of eastern England. And where the Dane law met the kingdom of Jorvik, well, the dueling gravies got a bit spicy. I'm waiting for you to tell me that gravies produced somewhere in Yorkshire, so this <laughs> lengthy gravy metaphor will make perfect sense. It's not. I'm just really into gravy right now. <laughs> uh, now, Jorvik fell after about a century of fighting, and you might think... Okay, done, enough murder and mayhem. But wait, because <laughs> in an important year, this bloke called Tostig and his friend Harold were just kind of working on re-establishing the kingdom of Jorvik when somebody's elbow slipped and, and boy, did the gravy get <laughs> spicier still. Now, in case my metaphors are getting overly mixed, we're talking 1066, baby. If you remember your history, Harold II, a.k.a. Harold Godwinson, was fresh off fighting his brother, Tostig, and Harold Hadrada at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in Yorkshire when William the Conqueror invaded. Good King Godwinson then had to bomb it south, double quick time, and got his arrow in the eye and so on. If only he'd had HS2. Yeah, that's true. He got there a lot quicker. Yeah, maybe. Come on, that's... Let's all get on. And the history of England could have been completely altered. It could have been. <laughs> now, the Norman invasion then led to a whole other wild period for Yorkshire, known as the Harrying of the North. Oh, that's going to be the Great Heathen Army's first record. <laughs> Harrying of the North. Nice. Now, very few people called Harry were actually supposedly <laughs> in, involved in this, strangely. Um, the kind of harrying we're talking about is the kind that means to attack persistently. <laughs> and now, the Harrying of the North came about when, in 1069... The people of Northern England tried to cast off the Norman yoke of oppression. Willie de Conk responded by basically sending armies up to just kind of burn everything and murder everyone in Yorkshire. Did you just name William I Willie de Conk? Yeah, that's, that's what he should be known as. In sort of, you know, when you know him, 
in a kind of casual circles. <laughs> Which you do. Yo, Willie the Conk, how you doing? <laughs> you met over a bowl of gravy. <laughs> <laughs> now, over 100,000 people died from starvation alone because of the harrying of the North, because all the crops were destroyed. It's worth saying that the Normans weren't completely and utterly awful for Yorkshire in that new towns sprung up after they destroyed the old ones, including Sheffield and Leeds and Hull. But only three towns from pre-conquest times survive at all. That's York, Bridlington and Pocklington. And, of course, a wave of amazing abbey building also followed, and Yorkshire has some stunning ruins to show for it, including Fountains Abbey, which was once the wealthiest abbey in Europe, as well as the gorgeous Whitby Abbey, Mount Grace Priory, Raveau Abbey, Bolton Priory, the list goes kind of on and on. One of the things I didn't realise about Yorkshire before doing my research was the extent to which the Scots kept invading it as well. Why not? Well, I guess if, if everyone's in it, why not? Why not? Um, now, they came down regularly with their big claymores and, for example, attacked in 1138. They were repelled. Then, after the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314 and the Great Famine of 1315, the Scots basically just kept raiding Yorkshire all the time, right up until the Black Death arrived <laughs> and killed a third of the population. You know, at that point, it's just a sort of weekend activity. Um, I'm a bit bored. I think I'll just pop down and go get the idea. And then they just reach a point where they're like, "Okay, there's nothing left in Aidlands. Might as well nip bother." <laughs> now, during the 15th century, you also, of course, had the Wars of the Roses. We talked about that before on our Lancashire episode, but that murder fest lasted for about 50 years. Mm-hmm. Then, less than a century later, Henry VIII started up with his blinking dissolution of the monasteries, and you had another uprising in Yorkshire called the Pilgrimage of Grace. Have Second you heard of- album for the great <laughs> heathen army. But I'm really loving all these epic names for things that happened. Oh, yeah. You know, I, it's I, not just, oh, we were a bit bothered. No, it's the harrying of the North. Yeah, I think we can say that the people in Yorkshire have a good sense of drama, for yeah, sure. Yeah, really appreciate an epic title. <laughs> now, are you familiar with the Pilgrimage of Grace? I'm vaguely familiar with the Pilgrimage of Grace. Uh, I, I mean, far from its rather nice title, yeah. it's actually religious mass murder, That's, isn't that's it? right. Yeah. This, this is where people refused to accept the new English church and were ceremonial executed in large numbers a process which continued right up until james the first came to the throne which is wild i mean mm. god's own country they say god's own country my hairy foot what a horrible lot of luck they have had in yorkshire yeah i mean god's own country in the same way that job in the bible is god's best friend yeah quite right Now, it's kind of had these back-to-back invasions and death and war for most of its history. When things did eventually settle down a bit in the 16th and 17th centuries, the region became very prosperous, primarily through two main industries. The first was wool, and the second was coal mining, which led to a real boom for Yorkshire during the Industrial Revolution. Then, the year I was born, there were the miners' strikes, of course. Those were in 1984. And that whole debacle was a moment of national fervour, which represented perhaps, at least in my mind, the last real kind of ruction in England's post-war history. 
it's fair to say that the amount of stuff we could talk about to do with Yorkshire is frankly overwhelming. Mm. You've got whole amazing cities like Leeds and Sheffield and Bradford. You've got the Yorkshire Dales. You've got the Ribble Valley with the sensational Ribble Head Viaduct. You've got Whitby. I mean, we could probably do an hour just on Whitby. We should. <laughs> well, there's obviously startling amounts of vampire and witchy stuff going on there. Uh, and I'm only really mentioning the names of places right now. I'm only going to scratch the surface today. But I'm happy to admit, I have never been to Yorkshire. And my number one top of the wish list place to go in England is York, which looks to me like the most amazing city. In York, you have historic layers of time in the architecture from pre-Roman Britain right on through. You've got the Roman city walls, the most complete set of Roman walls in England to walk around. You've got the York Minster, this amazing cathedral founded in 697, destroyed several times and finished in its current form in 1472. You've got Clifford's Tower, this amazing Norman keep at the centre of the York Castle complex. You've got the Shambles, this medieval street full of ancient buildings and shops. You've got Roundtree Park, a 20-acre common in the city, opened by one of my personal heroes, Joseph Roundtree. As who, in Jelly Babies. Yeah, wine gums, Jelly Babies, sweet, sweet, sweet manufacturers. Yeah, I don't know if you know much about Joseph Roundtree. He's um, no, very just, just his fine man. products. Well, okay, so, I mean, one of the things that Roundtree is famous for is kind of philanthropy. So he noticed as he was trying to make his businesses more profitable, and they were one of the most profitable businesses in England, really, during this period of time, um, that people were not reliably coming into work, as in his staff were um, not as reliable as he wanted them to be, and this was affecting his bottom line. And what he realised is that if he and other rich industrialists like him just spent a little bit of money on things like sanitation, clean water, education for children, actually it increased the amount of money that his business made. Mm. So he did lots of research. It was years of it. And through what he started, we ended up with a whole wave of improvements in English public life, including things like the establishment of public water fountains. The first garden cities were part inspired wow. by Roundtree. This was part of a whole load of reforms that involved, mm. you know, the, the first establishment of public People schooling. People have better and, living conditions and there's somewhere for their children to go and be looked after. In the day, it's almost like they'll be more productive at work. Well, this is exactly <laughs> the point. And so, you know, I think if you don't know much about him, his life is very, very interesting and his work is really important. And the Roundtree Foundation... And they made a biopic? Uh, they haven't, no. And the Roundtree Foundation continues to be really important in shaping public policy on the left. But I, I think one of the interesting things about Roundtree is he kind of came to understand that in social policy, a rising tide lifts all boats. So, mm. you know, the very, very rich don't need to lose money by helping people lower down the uh, societal ladder, I suppose. Mm. Anyway, um, so... Yeah, yeah, I'd like to know more about him. Oh, he's such an interesting Somebody would character. like to make a nice BBC costume drama? That would be excellent. <laughs> well, he was born in York. <laughs> now, then there's the York Museum, and that alone contains the Vale of York hoard of Viking treasure, oh. as well as the Middleham Jewel. 
Uh, it's in a botanical garden containing the Moltangle Tower of a Roman fortress. And even cooler, the Moltangle Tower was first constructed by the Ninth Legion, the same Ninth Legion of Roman soldiers you may have heard of because they just mysteriously vanished in one of the big bird, they? coolest bits of folklore ever. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, this huge Roman Legion that had done all these fantastic things just vanished one day. Mm. Why? How? Lots of people have speculated. Anyway... York is an insane place, and I'm kind of flabbergasted by it. And in much the same way as there's so much interesting history in Yorkshire, the folklore up there is deep enough to drown in. Speaking of drowning, at Semmerwater in Wensleydale, you'll find Yorkshire's second largest lake with a great little folktale attached called the Angel of Semmerwater. So the story goes, a hermit came to the town of Semmer begging for food. The hermit went from house to house, but nobody would offer anything. So the hermit revealed itself to be an angel and drowned oh. the town. <laughs> that doesn't seem like the usual act of an angel, but no. I guess it had just had a really hard day at that point. Nobody had given it any food. Yeah, exactly. C- could you not hear I have a rumbly tumbly? <laughs> Right, all of you, get it I mean, your point about the, the vengeful God seems yeah. to extend to, to God's staff as well. well in, in now, much like with the Bowmere Pool, which we talked about in our Shropshire episode, and also Dunwich, which we talked mm. about very recently in our Suffolk episode, the town is said to still be there under the lake and that you can hear the church bells ringing on stormy days. Mm, a drowned city. Yeah, definitely. Now, on the subject of storms, maybe the most important Yorkshire figure to mention is Mother Shipton. Oh, yes. We've already talked a bit about her back in episode two because she ended her days in Somerset. And in episode five, when we were talking about the Rollwright Stones... Yeah, she's a very well-travelled woman. Yeah, she's pretty interesting. Now, to give her her proper dues, Mother Shipton is maybe England's most famous witch. She was born Ursula Soothtail in 1488 to a 15-year-old mother... Agatha Soothtail in a cave near Knaresborough. Mother Shipton's cave is another place I'm dying to visit. Yes, me too. I um, am quite excited about the petrifying waters Yeah, it's pretty cool. So the cave is near this spot called the Petrifying Well, which is amazing. It's a skull-shaped pool. Oh, yes. (laughs) Starting strong. Uh, And it has these (laughs) incredible limestone shapes formed by falling water. Famously, the waters there turn things to stone. People leave items there and they petrify. Uh, Yes, and you can actually, I think, in their gift shop buy a teddy bear that's been petrified, although probably not very cuddly. No, I wouldn't imagine great to squatch. No, (laughs) petrified stone bear. No. Now, interesting fact, Mother Shipton's cave was the very first place in England to have ever charged tourists an entrance fee. Wow, they must have started pretty early They certainly did. Now, Shipton herself was a renowned herbalist, soothsayer and prophet. She was said to be incredibly ugly, a hunchback with bow legs and bulbous eyes, which I reckon is maybe just a smear campaign against a perfectly upstanding local businesswoman. It's also said that she was the offspring of her mother, this young girl, Agatha, having had an affair with the devil. 
This I find much more believable. Yeah, the devil. <laughs> saucy devil was up to no good. <laughs> saucy devil. Anyway, Ursula married Toby Shipton when she was 24, with people saying that she bewitched him into the marriage. She did allegedly do good in town, solving crimes and helping people, but after the mysterious death of her husband just two years after they were wed, she moved out into the woods. It was there that she started making prophecies before eventually travelling through England, going about her witchy businesses. Her prophecies predicted notable storms, the ascension of Henry VIII, who famously called her the Witch of York. Um, And her book of prophecies contains all sorts of interesting stuff, a lot of it wrong. But she does say that the world, as we know it, will end in a colossal flood. That's plausible. Yeah, she may yet prove to be correct. Climate change and so on and so forth. Another witch in Yorkshire folklore is Churn Milk Peg. Which is quite the name, I think. (laughs) Now, she's apparently uh, actually a ghost of a witch who smokes a pipe and hangs around near nut trees. She's known for popping out and scaring people if they try to eat unripe nuts, with her name coming from the milk of unripe nuts, which is also known as churn milk. Oh, that must have been the strange old woman who popped out of the fridge this morning when I was getting my almond milk. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Smoking her pipe. And you were like, what are you doing? Yeah, I was a bit curious. (laughs) She just slapped it out of your hand and then disappeared in a puff of smoke. Um, Now, want some more weirdness? Always. (laughs) Okay. Well, you'll like this one. The Wald-Newton Triangle. Is this anything like the Bermuda Triangle? It is just like the Bermuda Triangle. Well, kind of. I mean, ships don't disappear there because it's inland. But this section of Yorkshire ranges from Bridlington to Scarborough to Ganton, all of which are said to be linked by ley lines. And there are a few amazing things about it. One of which is, it used to be famous... For wolves. Oh, are they popping in and out of existence? (laughs) No, they aren't. But it was really apparently rather wolfy around those parts right (laughs) up until the mid-1700s. And not just regular wolves. So the legends go, the wolves of the Wald used to dig up corpses from local graveyards and from eating the bones and corpses would turn themselves into werewolves. Quite an amazing werewolf origin story. I know, right? So when you said the wolves of the wold, I thought, oh, what a lovely name for a children's book. Yeah. And then you carried on with the digging up and the eating of corpses. And then <laughs> thought maybe not a children's book. No, well, the most famous of these werewolves in the wold was called Old Stinker. <laughs> you know, apparently, Old Stinker ate so many corpses and stuff he just smelled really bad had terrible breath so you could smell oh, him no. coming the other wolves gave him a wide berth well maybe they were like he's he's the alpha because he smells, he smells the, the worst, worst. <laughs> now although most people agree the creatures that roved the wall were werewolves some say that they were just reanimated corpses so i'm gonna say that there were both werewolves and zombies in this place, which, what with Dracula landing at Whitby nearby, means you've got your three key monster types all in Yorkshire. Three types of monster, three ridings. Yeah. I'm seeing a whole alternate Yorkshire origin story. That was the sound of my mind blowing. Um, Now, talking of creatures, we've got another beast. Excellent. This one fits alongside Black Shark and the Beast of Bodmin Moor and so on. It's called the Bar Guest of Troller's Guild. Oh, now, a bar guest is another dog type. 
exactly it, right it's meant to be a demonic hellhound and it haunts yorkshire's woods and snickleways appearing to bother the locals this is in contrast to the black cat of hell mary hill which stays in a fixed location <laughs> typical cats just kind of lazing around but the legend has it that this black cat guards a chest full of buried treasure in a cave at the top of hell mary hill near sheffield only if anyone gets close to discovering this treasure, then the black cat appears with flaming eyes and defends the horde. Yeah, that'd put you off. It certainly would. Now, going back to the Wald Newton Triangle, also within its boundaries is the Rudston Monolith. This one's amazing. It's 25 metres tall. So the tallest standing stone in England. It dates from 5,000 years ago, and some say it was thrown by the devil, annoyed at people for worshipping the Christian God, but um, if you think about the timeline... It predates Yeah, that kind of doesn't work out if you think about it. There's also the Gypsy Race River, and this one's fascinating. It runs underground through the Great Wold Valley, but the river is also known as the Waters of Woe. Back with those epic naming traditions. I know, right? Well done, Yorkshire. Now, this is because when the river does rise to the surface enough to be seen, it's said to predict catastrophe. It's previously appeared before the Black Death, before the English Civil Wars, before both World Wars and so on and so forth. In terms of cool traditions in Yorkshire, firstly, on the 1st of August every year, there's... Yorkshire Day. Hurrah! This is a day when the people of the county celebrate its culture, which presumably involves being invaded several times across the afternoon. Um, (laughs) Now, the the way that they do this, actually, is they go and do something called the Declaration of Integrity, which includes going to York's gatehouses and around the walls. Uh, There's confectionery and parades and so on. So that's pretty great. But also on Ascension Day each year, there's the Penny Hedge tradition near Whitby. Have you heard of this? I haven't heard of the Penny Hedge tradition. Well, it was a new one on me too. But the tradition dates all the way back to 1159 when three boar hunters murdered a hermit at Eskdale. The Abbot of Whitby imposed them a penance of building these Penny Hedges... Uh, on the banks of the river not only did they have to do it but all of their descendants had to do this tradition for all time and the idea is that the penny hedges they build have to survive three tides of the river coming Ah. in so they have to be strong enough to to withstand that Um, other chunky bits of yorkshire folklore include the penhill giant who was said to have lived in a fortress in penhill in wensleydale which is also at a meeting point of ley lines you've got why the cheese is so magical maybe yeah your mum obsessed with Wensleydale she loves Wensleydale cheese maybe it's giving her enchanting properties well I mean, she's an enchanting woman, isn't she? She is. Yeah. That must be all the cheese. (laughs) Now, you've also got the cow and calf rocks on Ilkley Moor, which are these huge stones near one another, not far away from Keeley. They were said to have originally been one stone that was broken by Rombold the giant. Story goes that Rombold was being chased by his angry wife, only he wasn't looking where he was going, so trod on these huge rocks and split them apart. But that's not all. You've got another giant called Wade, who was first said to have made Wade's Causeway, 
which is this massive 6,000-year-old stone monument running for 25 miles across the North Yorkshire Moors. Wade is also supposed to have formed the Devil's Punch Bowl, otherwise known as the Hole of Hawkham, which is a 400-metre-deep, almost-mile-wide hole on the Yorkshire Moors. Story there goes, Wade got drunk, and his wife was also angry with him, so he dug up earth from the ground to throw at her until she went away. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how you should solve all domestic disputes. Yeah, just throw (laughs) rocks and mud. Um, Anyway, so the the holy dug uh, left the devil's punch bowl behind. In terms of other notable earthworks, Yorkshire is also home to the Kilburn White Horse, a massive limestone hill figure also on the North York Moors. Though the Kilburn White Horse is a little different in age to Wade's Causeway, while Wade's Causeway was created around the same time as Stonehenge, the Kilburn White Horse was dug in 1857. Oh, why? (laughs) It was just a bit of a lark. Apparently a school teacher took his students up there and they just did it. Fed up with Ofsted. Yeah, maybe. Come on, lads, let's get out of here and make Suck a massive hill game figure. Of soldiers. Yeah, we're going to make a horse. <laughs> um, now, other white horses in Yorkshire also include the Kelpie of Yore and the Kelpie of Stuart. I love a Kelpie legend yeah. because they're so beautiful and mysterious looking but actually full of murder. That's right. Now, these Kelpies, they're water spirits that stalk the banks of rivers. It said people used to see beautiful white horses mm. by rivers go to them and then the horses would then try to ride the people into the river and drown them which is not cool kelpies not cool at all oh, i expect they have their reasons <laughs> the harrying of the population the kelpying of the north <laughs> exactly now whether the kilburn white horse was actually intended as a hoax or not is a bit up in the air but one major hoax from Yorkshire was the Cottingley Fairies. I'm imagining you know this one. Yes, I certainly do. Yeah, it's quite famous. The Cottingley Fairies were a media sensation in the 1920s. One raised to the public eye by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote a whole book in support of it. In essence, the children of the Griffith and Wright families, Francis and Elsie, faked these fairy photographs of themselves playing with fairies, but they did so with such convincing skill, it took 60 years, and for Francis and Elsie themselves, to explain quite how they'd done it. It's very impressive. It's great. Um, As for real fairies, apparently the best place to spot them in Yorkshire is at Janet's Foss, where there's a stunning waterfall with a cave behind it. Some say the mist rolling off Janet's Foss forms into wraiths that head off into the wilds and harass people. But in the cave, there's Janet, the fairy queen. I didn't know the fairy queen was called Janet. I know, right? Well, we've we've talked about this before. Janet is an old generalised name for any kind of slightly magic-y lady, a witch or a fairy. So she might not actually be called Queen Janet. Um, But... You know, we talked about that on, on one of our, our Patreon episodes. Still, her fairies are known to be found playing all around the Gladiator Pool nearby. And perhaps if you catch her at the right time, you might get an audience with the fairy queen who lives behind oh, the waterfall. lovely. All this fairy talk leads very neatly into my story for the week, which is based on court records of a witch trial dating from the 1640s, as relayed by Yorkshire Minister John Webster in his book of 1677, The Displaying of Supposed Witchcraft. I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To call me an authority on the subject of witchcraft would be an exaggeration. Though there's no denying people do call me John Hephaestes on account of my unmatched alchemical knowledge, as detailed in my famous book, The Metallographia, I am, in truth, but a humble cleric. In truth, I prefer to go by my given name, John Webster, and though some call me a seeker, meaning to belittle my endeavours, such a title is not wholly incorrect. My writings on a range of philosophical subjects have drawn to me a degree of what might be called undue attention. Yet though my saint's guide and academiarium examen were viewed by some as controversial, it seemed God's will I write them. This is on account of my most firm belief that all men should learn the best truths and the truest rights. For this reason... I state with all assurance, I cannot be an expert in witchcraft, as, to put it simply, witchcraft does not exist. I could not be plainer on this point and have shown time and again that the works of John Dee and Paracelsus are anything but heretical. As finally demonstrated by both Boyle and Bacon, Dee's practices were naught but natural magic, and in natural magic I am a firm believer, as ought all learned folk endeavour to be. Certainly I know of instances of so-called witches. I was at York Assizes for the trials of Alice Nutter and of Janet Preston, and I journeyed to Lancaster at my own expense to witness the prosecution of the other so-named Pendle witches, yet all alleged witchcraft is but chicanery. There are a great many sorts of deceivers and impostors in this world, and diverse persons under passive delusions of melancholy and fancy. Yet there is no corporeal league ever made betwixt the devil and these persons. He does not suck on a witch's body or have carnal copulations with them. Nor do witches turn into cats or dogs or any such animals, or raise tempests or the like, which is what my most recent book sets out to prove. To speak of books, you needn't read mine, for the Bible says it all. There is not one word in the Bible that signifies a familiar spirit, or a witch in the sense that's vulgarly intended in common parlance. Likewise, unholy apparitions and the power of the devil... Certainly there is the witch of Endor in those pages, but the word witch is a mistranslation. For if she was a witch for raising up Samuel, then, well, 
Jesus Christ must be thought a witch in just the same way for raising up Lazarus, not to mention his most holy self. And forget not that our world is full of wonders mankind has yet not come to understand. Diverse creatures and minerals, such as beryls and crystals, might look miraculous to the foolish, the ignorant and the impious, but such things are natural and not diabolical, as can be proved by the sustained application of reason. Take the fine example from the times just after the Pendle trials, less talked about perhaps by virtue of the man who drew the court's focus being vindicated. His name was, like mine, John, and he was a simpleton. He was known in York for being unlucky. He was tricked and cheated all through his life on account of being innocent to the dark hearts of men. And John touched in his way, such as he was, was the last person who ought to face down a judge, let alone a prosecutor such as Durant Holtham, magistrate of East Riding. But I was there to watch, and I saw justice done. To describe John to you, when I knew him best, he was a dirty fellow. His hair was lank and long, his long nails bedded with mud. He slept often under the open sky, up on the moors, coming to town only when he'd gathered sufficient roots and berries to trade with folk for a hot meal and bed. Yet one day, John came to York with something new to trade. A sympathetic powder, he called it. One to cure all ailments. And he knew not to sell it for a low price and clutched the wooden box in which he held it close to his heart to defend it from thieves and cut purses. It took some time for John to find customers, but find them he did. And lo and behold, the powder worked. I saw a sample of it later in the court. It was white and fine as milled flour, emitting an aroma like the scent of honey. And it was on account of the success of this powder, which brought a long line of people to see John, all with coin to spend for a pinch of his curative dust, that he found himself accused. Folk could not understand how the powder might help a woman with a headache who took it as snuff, then resolve the aches in a cripple's legs when the dust was rubbed upon them that a man with plague who rubbed it on his buboes would soon enough see them disappear, while a whole house with stop gallant were saved from an affliction all new incurable. This happened not all at once, of course, for John would visit town with his wooden box and sell his wares, and when the box was emptied he would again stride out onto the moors in all kinds of weather, returning days later with his stocks replenished. The truth of what was happening on those moors was only revealed when John had been clapped in irons. By then he was less thin or soiled in appearance, having bathed and eaten many fine meals and bought himself new clothes. Though Mr Holtham made quite the statement on John's evils, reading a declaration in which John admitted his powder was magic, when John himself was invited to speak he explained himself completely. Slowly, I must admit, for John never had a skill with words, but he enlightened the court and saved himself in doing so. He said simply that one night, before day was gone, he was going home from his labours being very sad and full of heavy thoughts, not knowing how to get meat and drink. Only then 
he met a fair woman in fine clothes who asked him why he was so sad, and he told her it was by reason of his poverty. To this, she said that if he would follow her counsel, she would help him to that which would serve to get him a good living. He consented with all his heart, provided it were not a means to profit by unlawful ways, and she told him that it should not be by any such ways, but by the doing of good and the curing of sick people. The woman warned him strictly to meet her at that spot the next night, the same time. She departed from him, and he went home to the space between an outcrop where he used to lay his head, and the next night, at the time appointed, he duly waited, and she, according to her promise, came and told him that it was well he came so duly, otherwise he would have missed that benefit she intended to do him. She bade him follow her and not be afraid and led him to a little hill. There she knocked three times and the hill opened and they went in. They came to a fairy hall wherein was a queen sitting in great state and many people about her. The gentlewoman that had brought John there presented him to the queen and she said he was welcome, and she bid the gentlewoman give John some of the white powder and teach him how to use it. This she did, giving him the little wooden box, bidding him to give grains of it to any that were sick, saying it would heal them. She then brought him forth from the hill, and so they parted. The court was silent as John told his tale, yet questions followed. John was asked by the judge whether the place within the hill, which John called a hall, were light or dark, and John said, indifferent, as it is in twilight. Being asked how he got more powder, he said that when he wanted, he went back to that hill and knocked three times, whereupon it opened. On going in, he said he was conducted by the aforesaid woman to the queen, and so had more powder given to him. This was the plain and simple story he told before the judge. The whole court and the jury... And there being no proof, save what cures he'd done to very many, the jury did acquit him. Mr. Hotham seemed to judge John rightly accused, for he had the white powder from some spirit. Yet there was no contract with the devil, neither was it ever proved that the devil did any good, either real or apparent, but is the sworn enemy of all mankind, both in their souls and in their bodies. Yet John's powder, it wrought that which really was good, namely the curing of diseases, and therefore, rationally, it could not be thought to have been given him by an evil spirit. As for the notion that John had the powder from those people we call fairies, there are many that do believe and affirm that there are such people. Uh, Paracelsus hath a treatise holding that the fae are not the seed of Adam, and therefore he calls them non-Adamics, but he states that they have flesh and bones, and so differ from spirits, yet they can glide through walls and rocks as easily as we through the air, a function which Paracelsus called their chaos. Some call them Sylvester's, some gnomes, but the proof of their existence is entirely satisfactory. I remember the judge said, when all the evidence was heard, that if he were to assign punishment, then John might well have been whipped or worse had his tale been a deceit or an imposture. Yet it was true. So John walked free. 
it is my view, firmly held, that in all such cases of magic, there is an explanation such as this to be discovered. For if it can be proved that a person did murder another, the means should be shown. Elsewise, it's delusion to call folk witches. And elsewise, in the fashioning of charms and powders and tonics, if a person has skills as a healer, as I do, then they ought to be praised and rewarded for it, not hanged from a noose until dead. As for John, after the trial, he was seen no more, having strode up to the wilds and vanished from view. If I were him, I would have gone to that fairy hall and stayed there. It seems their queen is at least a benevolent ruler. And though they say we must all now give praise to the latest Stuart to take the throne, I refuse. Some say he is a divinely ordained miracle. But I'll tell you this. Miracles are no more real than witchcraft. So, Eleanor, the displaying of supposed witchcraft by John Hephaestus Webster. What do you reckon? Well, I'm really interested um, in these kind of early people who tried to disprove witchcraft yeah. or tried to say, look, it's actually, it's healing. It's not doing anybody any harm. I think he's a bit of a front runner. Yeah, he is. Well, one of the many interesting things about John Webster, who was a minister, but who gave up being a priest to focus on science, was that his discoveries were really important. For example, Isaac Newton used wow. Webster's science books throughout his career. So he was the real deal. He was the real deal. I also find it really difficult to imagine what it would have been like to have, on the one hand, been alive during the Puritan protectorate, and then, on the other, to have lived through the restoration of the monarchy. I always imagine that for most ordinary people, they just carried on regardless. Yeah, probably. Like, living probably their lives as their they life. would have done. Yeah, they weren't getting uh, pressure to watch oh, the coronation on the telly. it's changed again. <laughs> oh, look. No, all right, we're not wearing black and tall hats anymore. It's all big wigs and parties. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> but I still need to get the cows in. <laughs> but I suppose if you're an educated person, you've travelled around, you've been to university, you've seen a bit more mm. of the world, you must have a philosophical argument or a sense of justifications that you've built up over time. And having to do a series of U-turns, you can see why people found it so difficult to change their mind and so ended up executed or arrested and so on and yes, so Yes, when actually half the time it must have been... But five minutes ago, you told me I shouldn't believe in that. Yeah, yeah, quite right. And perhaps that's why there are so many important books to have emerged during this period, mm. including Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress and Milton's Paradise Lost, which are quite serious, and Afra Ben's plays and novels, of course. And then you've got this wave of restoration comedies, which happen after the restoration and... As you know very well, they are pretty filthy. Yes, uh, China is never China in a restoration <laughs> comedy. <laughs> Elaborate. Oh, I mean, it's it's just a metaphor for <laughs> genitals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and thinking of um, Witchley's the country wife, which uh, I mean, even the title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you think about that for just a second, yeah. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> poets like John Wilmot, the Earl of Rochester. The guy, the guy wrote smut. He really yeah, did. Very rude poetry. Very funny, but still smut. Uh, and then, of course, you get Dryden, after which poetry becomes quite staid. But running parallel to all that, you've got the end of this fascination with witches. Obviously, we're still interested in witches today, but attitudes are very different. 
Yeah, and as the Enlightenment starts to progress, witchcraft becomes less credited, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It gets pushed onto the fringes of society. I mean, in certain places, in some places, I think it was still feared. In England, I think, on the whole, you've got... Takes a bit of a backseat. This emergence of the natural philosopher as Mm. as a kind of idea. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I I liked that you brought up Paracelsus in your story, because, I mean, Paracelsus... Which? <laughs> well, this is the thing. And a lot of the people who came after and we considered to be these great scientists and great inventors. Really relied on the works of Paracelsus, which um, was largely gathered from travelling around and talking to cunning folk yes, that's and right. hedge practitioners. Yep. A lot of his theories came from just simply getting folk medicine and cures from people he met. Yeah, and also I think Webster is really interesting as one of the first big defenders of John Dee. Mm. Uh, he, he comes out and, and talks about all the wild things that John Dee did. And if you don't know very much about John Dee, which fascinating <laughs> man with his obsidian mirror and his talking to angels. Yes, Enochian script written yeah. from his talks with angels, divining the whereabouts of treasure. He's so fascinating. He I'm very interested in John Dee. He is, isn't he? Now, I think uh, Webster occupies this really interesting place because he's advocating rationalism and the serious, what we might call scientific approach to proving witches don't exist. But then he's also completely advocating for these other magical things, such as fairies and angels (laughs) and goblins and so on, which he considers to be factual, like all his contemporaries. They all believe these things. It slightly reminds me of um, scientists who feared the Catholic Church, but understood heliocentrism. Yes, but didn't really want to say that they fully understood it because it would have them excommunicated. (laughs) And it sort of reminds me of that. You're saying, well, you know, fairies may exist, but they've got flesh and blood like us, and they're actually corporeal and perfectly rational, and we can explain them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's great, isn't it? So shall we talk correspondence? Yes, let's do it. And the first thing we should say is thank you to Michelle, Gary and Rachel for your messages about our Dying Arts episode about marionette making. Thank you for taking the time to write to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you also to Andy, who sent us some brilliant information that we'll be including in our second listener episode, but who also very helpfully informed us that we, once again, got some pronunciations wrong. Yeah, we really appreciate it when people let us know when we haven't got things quite right, such as our incorrect pronunciation of Rekin, which still haunts me, and our error around the placement of Carlisle <laughs> isn't on Scaffold Pike. But uh, I suppose this is the danger when you're often only reading about things. Yeah, English is a strange language. Yeah. So Andy wrote to say several useful things about our Northumberland episode, mm. including that Alnwick, as I, as I would have said it, yeah. that's A-L-N-W-I-C-K, is actually pronounced Anik. Yes. And that Bamba, i.e. Bamba Castle, is emphasised Bambura. Yes. And there are also a number of villages ending in Ingham in the northeast, such as Edlingham, which are pronounced Ingham. Yeah, Edlingham. It's one super esoteric and very interesting idea from the northeast. And if all those Ingham places don't have their lines of conserves, then they are really missing mm-hmm. a trick. I, for one, would like to try Edling Jam Jam. 
<laughs> we have been trying the jam suffix with all of the places we can think of yes. with a ham ending or an yep. ingham ending, which has been good fun <laughs> and probably super inaccurate. Yep. <laughs> we also heard from Robert, who sent us a lovely email and contribution for our second listener episode. Thank you so much, Robert. It's a great story. I'm really looking forward to sharing that one. Mm. But I think the prize for the cutest email of the week goes to Patricia. Now, this is just delightful. Patricia wrote to say, I'm a birder living in the Northeast US. Ravens are uncommon here, so always a treat. There's a small nature sanctuary nearby where we band ring birds spring and fall. Occasionally we hear the gronkers and this spring a pair nested in a tree in our parking lot. <laughs> of course, I named them Eleanor and Martin. So cool. We watch them come and go, gronking away and caring for their eggs and then hatchlings. During our final week of banding, the first week of June, there was suddenly a ruckus and out flew five ravens. Eleanor and Martin's babies fledged. Of course, I named them Ben, Ollie and Jane. <laughs> now this is just the so best amazing. thing. Yeah. Having it. local ravens named after us and Ben who of course plays and sings with Eleanor on the Three Ravens theme and Ollie James Dare who makes our logos is just wonderful thank you so much Patricia so cool so it's cool amazing I hope they're happily flying around yeah definitely I'm <laughs> telling Three stories Ravens, Ravens. And bringing omens to people <laughs> <laughs> now we didn't get any new reviews on iTunes or Apple Podcasts this week so dear listener if you have five minutes and would be willing to write us one we would really appreciate yes. it yes and do please consider dropping some stars on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and we should also say a big thank you to our likers commenters and super sharers from this week yes so thank you to didier billy joe brenda falcon donna and chester castle on facebook eben flows duo mimicry marisa underscore super gran i hope she is a super gran I'm sure she is. Uh, unhallowed art scammer and fernwood photography on instagram and Stuart mystic moon ali dr maria de Blasey, and harriet on twitter do please join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast and twitter at three ravens pod and of course if you would like bonus and exclusive content including all of our episodes early and ad free our stories as text versions the monthly three ravens newsletter and much more besides do please consider supporting us on patreon at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast and of course thank you to everyone who is sharing the podcast listening subscribing being kind and lovely and helping three ravens grow we have absolutely loved writing and releasing series two and are already very excited about series three which we will start releasing during december but before then we have a whole month of spooky content for haunting season oh, yeah. starting this thursday with our magic and medicines episode all about ouija yeah and then we'll have some fun compilation episodes and our second listener episode in november for everyone to enjoy thank you so much three ravens community you are the absolute best and please tell your friends to binge through what's already been released if they're not listening and please write those reviews if you can send us your winter folklore art your folk tales and your pumpkin photos along with any other thoughts and feedback to three ravens podcast at gmail.com until next time while our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle until you're out of the woods Thanks and credit go to Andrew Walsh's book, Forgotten Yorkshire Folk and Fairy Tales, Kai Roberts' Folklore of Yorkshire, and the Yorkshire.com website, all of which were very useful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. 
The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men, with a down derry day.